Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends, through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. Today, we're going to be talking about securing critical infrastructure. So critical infrastructure, well, we all know that it's going to be quite key for certain services around you know, national infrastructure, whether we're in the UK, whether in the States, no matter what country we're in, to make sure that it's secure so that it can carry on continuing providing services to facilitate us in our daily lives. Now, I'm very, very pleased to have somebody from Dragos here. I've got Phil Tonkin. Phil, do you just want to kind of say hi to the guys out there and, and let them know sort of who you are, where you come from, your background, that kind of thing? Thanks, James. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm Phil Tonkin from Dragos. Um, I, uh, I work in our strategy function, but uh, you know, have come from a, a background in managing critical infrastructure in the UK. And it's uh, you know, part of the important part of our mission to look at how we overall safeguard civilization. And there are many different forms of, of critical infrastructure. I think now it's uh, more prevalent than ever. The individual things that we've become to rely on, we're starting to see and, and, and more and more the um, how the fragility of our critical infrastructure uh, you know, can, can be disrupted by, by geopolitical events, by, uh, by extraordinary events like, like pandemic. And so it's... Um, Moving to Dragos for me was a as a, a way of, uh, of of continuing to develop my uh, you know my journey in in safeguarding you know, infrastructure and and you know starting to see how we can we can work together as a huge community to try and uh, advance the development of defensive capabilities. Fantastic! It's an absolute pleasure to have you on here. So, critical infrastructure, we have seen a lot going on in this space for the last couple of years, haven't we? But first off, for those out there who are kind of interested in the the critical infrastructure space from an InfoSec perspective, what do we mean by critical infrastructure? I think that that the global understanding of of the definition has really shifted over the last few years. Without Mm. a doubt, people have always seen, for example, electricity as being that. I think the something about the immediacy of, of our dependency on electricity. If you do something to it, the lights go out. It's, you know, it's, it's either on or off. And I think that is, um, it's, that is what it brought that focus to it. And, you know, there's never been a, a film from Hollywood where, which is included hacking that doesn't have somebody switching something off, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, whether their aim is to rob a bank or to, you know, to, you know, to create you know, chaos, you know, there's always somebody trying to hack the power grid and, and switch off the lights. So there's been an obvious focus on on that that sector as as critical infrastructure for for such a, a long time but then as we've we started to see the other forms of infrastructure gas and water sort of fall into those into those same categories again those don't have the same immediate effects if something was to happen on the gas network it takes a long time before it physically starts to manifest for the end consumer there's a if mm. if suddenly we lose we lose gas across the continent or, or or from the north sea it would take days in many cases for it to actually be seen for the consumer so much of it 
stored in the pipelines, what we call line pack. But the, the longer term impacts of those, of the fragility of that supply chain have started to manifest as, as we start to worry more about the long term supply of those things. We saw a, a large event with a, a petroleum pipeline in, uh, in mm. the US, which really shifted the understanding of the importance to, to civil society and you know, the amount of unrest that it can create when some of these things are, uh, are affected. But when you start to move away from the traditional utilities and you start to think about the digital economy, getting food you know, to, to people, we saw that the nature of supply chain in, into, into stores was quite delicate during the COVID pandemic. You know, getting toilet paper onto the shelves you know, in order to meet demand, you know, it, was, it only takes somebody to, to have a run on, you know, to suddenly decide that there might be a shortage to create a shortage. Uh, and this, you know, the supply chain works with tight margins. You know, we've many years been educated as leaders and managers to think about just in time as the way to drive efficiency into businesses. Actually, you know, it only takes a, a very small change to think about that becoming just too late. I mean, I mean, I've I've been into the whole kind of uh, security thing now for 25 years, and and throughout my career, I've I've gotten kind of a, a key interest in things like preparation. Obviously, you have to prepare in this space. You know, in infosec, you're always preparing for something that could potentially come down the line. You know, I'm not saying that I go and get a load of guns and go up somewhere in Alaska and and build myself my own community. I'm not quite down that route yet, but we do a lot of prepping, and I think. Something interesting that you mentioned just there, you know, it's like, I think a lot of people before the colonial pipeline incident with the ransomware attack kind of just took critical infrastructure as a given as being secure, like it was magically secure and nobody ever really felt they had to worry about it. Okay, you know, sometimes things would overload, sometimes things would break down or whatever, but, you know, or you'd have high winds and you'd lose power for a bit. But the concept of having a, you know, like a, a digital-based attack bring down an infrastructure or a critical, what we call, a, you know, what we would call a critical infrastructure seemed to be totally unheard of because, I mean, you used to hear it plenty of times here in the commercial areas as well. You know, oh, they're a big company. They must be secure. And it's like, mm, I think you tend to find the bigger the company the least secure they tend to be. Well, the greater the attack surface uh, is, is um, you know, the, it, it gets harder and harder to do it. And, and whilst they will be mature enough to be thinking about the need to do something, it's a much harder decision to make. How do I invest, you know, in the most, in the most efficient way to manage a risk that I've not seen manifest? You know, it's been for, for many years, if you take Typical regulated utilities, more into the pipelines you might see downstream of, you know, you're in the gas space or water space. It's a, you can predict the failure of a pipeline. You can predict, you know, because you might be running tens of thousands of miles of, of infrastructure. So statistics and time will tell you that, that you know, this many will be hit by accident. This many will fail through corrosion. This many will fail through erosion or, or your geological damage. None of those things have intent, though. So it is very difficult to predict you know, when these things are going to happen. I think the, 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 when you think about ransomware, you know, the likelihood has just gone through the roof. So it, it's much easier now for people to invest in putting in place defensive mechanisms. But Colonial, for me, showed that there's this inextricable link now between IT and OT. For many years, we talked about IT versus OT, or IT-OT convergence. 
nobody really knew what that meant. Is it where they meet? Is it where the technology starts to cross boundaries? Is it the interdependency? Is it the exchange of skills? They are now inextricably linked. It's still easy to, to define what is OT and what is IT, but when you start to look at the crown jewels of your operation and say, you know, what, what do I need to move fuel through a pipeline, you, you start to think about you know, what those are. They will vary from company to company. You know, uh, a, a company that manages the sale of their product, you know, the amount that they've got and where it's going, how much they're getting for it, that's an IT system. You're know, driven by data from their OT. And, uh, you're in, so quite often even putting in place a, a segmentation between those can mean that there's a disruption to supply because it's, it's not economically viable for them to run their OT. You know, so a lot of people talk about shutting down OT to, you know, to protect it from the, you know, from threats in the IT. Sometimes it's an economic decision and every company will have a slightly different stance on it, depending on how they feel they're important. And I think some companies, you know, even if the loss of revenue wouldn't shut off their OT, others, you know, will, will because, you know, they have their shareholders to, to respond to. And it's, you know, it's a decision for each company to, to make, to think about how they respond and how they fit in with that societal impact. And I think utilities and those traditional forms of critical infrastructure are more in tune with that. If a large supermarket was hit by a, a cyber attack on their warehouses and they, they didn't know how much they were sending out to people or a supplier to a supermarket, would they keep supplying it because it's the right thing to do? Or would they just not send it because they're going to lose revenue for every item that's there? That's, that's different, you know, they, you know, it's a difficult decision for, for them to make, even if they know that their product is, is absolutely necessary to society. Well, this is it. And, and, and again, going back to Colonial, I, th- I think that was a really big wake-up call for a lot of people, a, a lot of people outside of the InfoSec space to realise quite how fragile some of these systems are. And it, as you quite rightly point out, it doesn't take a lot to disrupt them. You know, if you disrupt the gas, you're not going to notice for a little while. If you disrupt the oil, it's very quick that it suddenly goes all, all of a sudden completely to pot. Obviously, if the power goes off, that's a pretty instant thing as well, <laughs> you know, brownouts, that kind of stuff. But there's, there's a whole host of other areas of, of critical infrastructure that we don't consider. You know, a lot of people, as you say, they look at the power, they look at the water, they look at the light. But we do have that just-in-time piece as well for supermarkets. I remember in the early days of the pandemic, people were buying pretty much everything they could get. Yeah, It's interesting to see how the narrative has now really, really changed and people are starting to ask their officials, you know, how secure are some of these environments? You know, you say they're secure, but we now need to prove it because I'm seeing every week a new hospital that's been compromised. I'm seeing, you know, new sort of ISPs that have been compromised. Financial industries have been compromised. You know, let's not even go into the whole SV, the Silicon Valley banking thing. Is that critical infrastructure? Is it not? Well, to a lot of VCs and to a lot of startups, that definitely is bloody critical infrastructure. <laughs> what is your kind of view on that? Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's, it's suppose it's, it's the ability for us to define what are the actual critical infrastructures and what are those supporting and, an, and ancillary services. And, you know, the, the European NIS directive, um, went a long way in trying to define those. Uh, and the, you know, the, the, the recent updates and implementation of that have allowed that, that infrastructure in certain European states to, you know, to be 
clarified and, and widened. Um, there are specifically excluded industries from some of the regulations because it's felt that they already have their own. So great examples of that is the telcos. They sit outside of the, uh, the NIS directive in the, uh, in the NIS regulations in the UK because they already have in place, you know, significant regulation and controls around them. But they absolutely underpin every part of critical infrastructure. You know, there's, there isn't a, a critical infrastructure company in, in the world that doesn't in some way rely on telecoms services. Now, some of them will use their own internal services. Some of them will use the telcos to manage those services and others will just buy in that capacity. But the, you know, the telcos are inextricably linked to critical infrastructure. And as we see, you know, the cloud services start to kind of fall into that, into that, that same space. You know, if you, you know, if you take that, the pandemic, for example, you know, if you took away Amazon, that would have been a massive impact, you know, during, you know, during that time. If people relied on those services to, to deliver food to their homes, you know, they were providing a critical service. And we recognize that as society by de- declaring people key workers. I think it, more than I've time seen previously, absolutely, we, took, we, we put the, our health services on, on a pillar. But there were a lot of people who were, it became really obvious were important to society, whether it's through for, you know, waste collection, food deliveries. We accepted and, and uh, you know, appreciated the extra steps that those people made. And I think that has helped us corporately to understand actually I'm a key part of this. You know, even outside of regulation, you know, we speak with companies who are, are an absolutely key part to the distribution, um, of goods around the country who absolutely recognize the, their criticality. You know, they, they, they know that if, if you don't have wooden pallets to put the, the goods on, they can't get in and out of the automated warehouses. They can't get to the stores. And that's food. That's medicines. That's you know, the basic things that we, you know, we need. And so companies are self recognizing their importance. Therefore, they're understanding why they might be targeted, both because in say the manufacturing industries and the supply those those immediate supply chain industries, criminals recognize the cost of downtime and see that as a motivating factor in paying ransom. Ransomers are smart. They go they they've got a reliable business model which relies a certain amount on trust. People trust that if they pay the ransom, typically they are getting, you know, those people are leaving their environment and certainly giving them their data back. You know, the business model would collapse if they didn't do that. So we see that they are deliberately targeting organizations that are, will be motivated to recover quickly because it's calculable, you know, in terms of impact. And the manufacturing industry has, has been the number one target for ransomware in the industry. Over the last 12 months, we've, we identified that in our, through our, our year in review. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's an ever growing trend. And the, the, the big motivator there is that these companies recognize their importance. They recognize the impact on them, you know, in terms of their immediate revenues. And they're doing that. And, and those, those companies are going to start to think of themselves in that criticality, whether government decides to tell them their critical infrastructure or, or not. And, and sometimes the knee jerk reaction of, of bringing certain legislations in too fast can actually, uh, you know, can create negative effects because nobody can quite agree what regulations there should be. And then therefore they might implement the wrong controls. A risk based approach to the, you know, to managing risk 
you know, within those critical organizations is always the, the most effective. You know, businesses know for themselves what their appetite for risk is. And as long as they, they're responsible for the consequences of, of their own risk management, they can, you know, are pretty good at identifying what the effective controls might be. Uh, and, uh, you know, whilst I, I absolutely think that things like the NERC-SIP regulations in the US have, have shifted the risk needle and, and made, made it better. It's very prescriptive and it's very expensive and, and every change can be challenging because not everybody agrees. Are governments actually redefining what they, they term as critical infrastructure? Because I think the pandemic really showed where there was... I mean, remember the shipping, you know, people couldn't unload, couldn't unload the ships. I mean, there was even some shipping companies that went under whilst the ships were still sat there. And of course, nobody would, would take the crew on board. But then we have things like the pipeline with the oil. You know, a lot of people don't consider, didn't consider at the time oil to be critical infrastructure items. I think a lot of, a lot of the public have realized now that, that, that things aren't right. But are the governments actually starting to look objectively at what they class as critical infrastructure and redefining it? Yeah, I, I think they are. You know, from, from the people that, that I speak to, you know, I can see that there is an appetite to continually review and, and analyze how these interdependencies work. You know, for, for many years, government departments have invested in and, and, and researched methods of understanding how society will operate during a time of crisis. You know, how can you identify, if you take one thing out, what are the consequences going to be? There are some really sophisticated technologies that have been developed to try and model human behavior in these places because that's the that's the big variable you know you you don't quite know you know whether there wasn't really a shortage of toilet paper it was just an extreme demand people didn't need you know need it more they just wanted it more at one at one moment so it, it's those human factors that make it hard to predict exactly you know who is critical infrastructure and how much of it is and of course because in many senses things are distributed it um in terms of you know, there isn't a single point of failure you can take a different type of risk approach to whether there are single points of failure. You know, we have in the UK uh, you know, a, a single interconnected national grid. You know, we have you know, many different DNOs and transmission operators who, who operate within this space, a number of different generators and embedded generation. But it is all inextricably linked and synchronized. So there's a big... Um, interdependency there, which means it's easy for us to see it as a, as a single system. But we might think in the terms of the supply of petrol, that, oh, it's, you know, there are a number of different companies. So one gets affected, then the others will still be there to pick up the slack. But actually, economics have driven a reduction in the availability of supply. There aren't anywhere near as many petrol stations as there were. They're designed to be economically viable. They only just are able to operate the surplus in the market you know, and the industry has gone and uh, and it's it's where efficiency has driven the reduction in surplus it, it reduces it reduces your resilience so i think that's where it becomes important that you know governments look to you know to identify you know what can what do they need to potentially subsidize in order to increase resilience you know it was not possible 15 years ago for companies to keep open gas storage facilities that were inefficient you know, the production of LNG gas in the UK, you know, the, the liquefaction of it and turning it into something that's easy to store, it uses you know, many times more energy than, than, you know, than it actually is holding. So it's a very expensive thing to do in, in this country. 
we didn't we shut down gas storage facilities because we didn't need it. We had plenty of gas, you know, but it you know, all it took was for a shift in the demand centers, you know, to mean that most you know, most of the shippers were trading gas out of the UK as it landed to suddenly drive up prices and have a huge impact on every member of society, every domestic customer is paying for the fact that all of the gas companies had to hedge, you know, at incredibly expensive wholesale prices that suddenly dipped again after they'd done that. Because we can't invest in those kinds of infrastructure because they're not efficient, it reduces the overall operational resilience and makes us more fragile to the risks that might affect them. And in the cyber, in the cyber sense, it's just one way that they can be affected. And it means that as people recognize they are part of that fragile system, they need to invest in some way to try and, uh, you know, to try and mitigate those risks. Fantastic. You obviously get to speak to a lot more organizations in this space than obviously I do. I mean, we've got a couple of people in our books that, that would be classed as critical infrastructure, but you and your company get to speak to all kinds of different organizations across all kinds of different verticals. I mean, what are, what are you hearing from, from your customers as one of the, the, the key things they're most frightened of, they're, they're most worried about? I mean, is it this kind of move to that third party, you know, such a distributed third party model that 20 years ago, everything was predominantly in house. Your IT department was in house. Your computer systems were usually on premise. Maybe a few. Th- services elsewhere that that were brought in, but applications were driven by your own servers. Uh, You had obviously air gapping in certain things within, um, you know, within uh, critical infrastructure just to to provide an added layer of protection. But all of that has now disappeared or it's on its way out. Is that something that you guys are are concerned about? Or is it something else? I mean, what are your, what are your, what what keeps you up at night? Yeah, I suppose there's there's two ways of of looking at it. for, for businesses, they, you know, they tend to be kept awake you know, by two things. There's the risk of, uh, of, a, of an attack and the risk of non-compliance. And in some ways, you should be able to be compliant as a consequence of good risk management. You should, you know, should be able to manage your risks by doing the right things. And then that should tick all of the boxes that makes you compliant because you're, you know, doing a good job of managing your risks. But unfortunately, that's not quite the case. And because it is very difficult to write a compliance-based framework that that doesn't drive people to to do things that may not necessarily be the top of, of their priority list. But organizations tend to take compliance risk very, very seriously. Some more than others, but it, but you know, most of the organizations we with are very driven by the reputational impacts and the cost impacts of not being compliant with legislation. And so if you think about that supply chain, third party security piece, there, there's a, there's a lot of work you know, being done on your know, both sides of the Atlantic in trying to get organizations to think about their supply chain dependencies. Because, you know, we saw with the, you know, the impact from things like solar winds, the attackers recognize that these are incredibly powerful vectors, you know, to use. You know, not having to just target the infrastructure of many, you need to target the infrastructure of one and you get access to many uh, or you can create impacts in many. The same adversaries look at the industries and, and look for, um, other ways to target infrastructure. There are many common suppliers into key critical infrastructure, critical manufacturers that um, supply their technologies into the oil and gas space, into the food and beverage space, and and therefore they provide a single point in which those uh, you know, those adversaries could target multiple different points of infrastructure. 
So I think it's absolutely right that organizations think about that third party risk because it ticks off two of those boxes. It is a real risk because it's the, you know, that is a, is a vector that criminals and state actors are, are using as a, as a means to get to critical infrastructure. And it also is an important part of most compliance frameworks. So you know, looking at those third party risks is important. One key part that those third party risks typically create a, a challenge in, is in, is in remote access. More and more we see these third party services, whether it's a software management capability or ma- physically managing a piece of equipment in the operational sense relies on remote connectivity. You're either you're connecting to a cloud service or you're connecting to that company's infrastructure to allow them remote access or you've given, just given them remote access into your systems. There's a real challenge with trust there because you having to, you're almost implicitly trusting them within your environment, which means having your really robust, secure remote access capabilities is, is important and having a defensible architecture that allows you to respond should there be any risks or compromises there. Because, um, and the ownership and design of those things is, I find is, uh, is very challenging in some industries because the big OEMs want to implement their form of remote access because they've got, they want repeatability, scalability. That's how they make their business efficient. And each individual custom has their way of doing it. And there's always a clash. And so you end up with the OEM or the, or the third party software provider has to deal with, with a different uh, ecosystem of capabilities or the end user does, usually the end user. And that's harder to defend, harder to do vulnerability management. You know, the key vulnerability management is one of the you know, critical controls. You know, very difficult in the industrial space to keep everything patched and up to date. But being able to, but thinking about the, the capabilities you have on your perimeter you know, that's probably one of the first places to look to make sure you don't have vulnerabilities. And if you have one particular remote access capability and you've got one type of firewall, whilst there might be some risks in that, it's much easier to keep on top of the uh, patching and maintaining those, you know, that technology if you have one or two there. But if you've got 10, because you've got 10 different providers who all insist in their own type, it makes it harder. So it fits in so many ways. The, the way that third party risk is, is being used by, you know, so criminals and, uh, you know, and state actors to, you know, to, as a means of getting to these critical companies. I think, you know, one of the, uh, there's a couple of things to unpack there for me. I mean, you know, one of the, 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 the difficult things, I think, you know, having been in, in this space for as long as I have, you know, it takes compliance to really drive people to actually secure themselves. I think that that's one of the biggest lamentations that I have on that particular score. A lot of us InfoSec people have been around for a while have always kind of said, look, you're not giving us any kind of budget at all to help secure you it's it's like you know you're, you're giving me five pounds and a pickled egg and you're expecting me to secure robustly your entire environment your whole your whole infrastructure so you can continue to make good profit the figures that we tend to bandy around a lot nowadays and i think some of that's changing now is like five to ten percent of the it budget tends to get given to to infosec people and it's like well once i've bought like two or three decently <laughs> expensive tools, that's it, I'm done, I, I haven't got any more. And then next year when I renew, unless you give me more budget, I'm going to be sat here and I, I can't work miracles. Okay, good governance, good skills, there's a big skill shortage at the moment, obviously anyway, but that can take you far. But you do need to have this bundle of tools, depending upon what type of organisation, of course, and what you're doing and, and so on and so forth. 
But are you starting to see budgets change within critical companies? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, firstly, I mean, people in most organizations have typically seen IT as an overhead and reluctantly paid for their IT. The shift to digitized business and, you know, people have started, I think, now to recognize that you know, yes, IT is always expensive. People always reluctantly spend their money on on computers and delivering IT projects. You know, they you know they might you can with the idea of spending a a, bil- a billion pounds on a on you know, on a on a financial system in a big company is you know it sounds like a crazy amount of money, but that's you know because it's it's not physical. Days, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, and I think people recognise now that IT infrastructure within a company is an asset and, and is a, is a is the way in which you generate revenue. Your business can do that. So that immediately shifts the idea of what it means to be you know to invest in IT. Security was the, the poor cousin of, of that, you know, of the, of IT for most people in the past. The shift to, for people to think about technology and cybersecurity holistically rather than as just a, a, you know, a function of IT, I think is helping in terms of budgets. The board level, they don't really want to consider cybersecurity for IT, cybersecurity for OT. It's cybersecurity for my business. And many CISOs have been empowered to report into you know, to their boards rather than the CIO, and even in many cases, you know, the CIO recognizes that actually the, the responsibility, even if there is a reporting line there, they recognize that there is a, a responsibility to manage risk across all of their operations, and that means working with multiple different stakeholders. But it means that people start to consider cybersecurity as part of their operational asset rather than just a sub, you know a sub part of their IT. It's allowed them to sort of shift their understanding of how much is there to be spent. And just again, in terms of budgets, I wouldn't underestimate how much the government has supported critical infrastructure companies by providing them the mechanisms to, to get money. You know, as the NIS directive uh, you know, came along, regulations were put in place and the regulated entities have been provided a huge amount of support um, in order you know, to, and mechanisms to recover their costs. It is an opportunity for them to make money by adding to their asset base. So it's not a bottom line thing, it's a profit-making opportunity, but within the bounds of, efficient, of efficiency because they, every penny that they spend comes from the bill pair. You know, the regulators have been very generous in providing the mechanisms for, for regulated entities to regain the, you know, their costs and, and earn some return on that investment. And even for the non-regulated entities, there are mechanisms for them to, to do things because their role in society is often larger than their own risk. You know, so you know, the, the, the consequential societal risk is greater than the corporate risk. And so it is sometimes disproportionate what you have to do in the infrastructure space, you know, in terms of your investment. And, you know, the governments, you know, typically recognize that and, and are providing a lot of financial support. And it's, it's, it's nice to hear that because I think we're going through such a giant flux in the infosec industry at the moment. Everything's changing, you know, attacks are becoming far more broadcast over media. We're hearing about them time and time again. We've got customers and, and it's something interesting you mentioned actually there about CISOs shifting in an organization's kind of hierarchy. I remember back in the day when the CIO, for instance, would report in usually to the finance director. And then that changed when, as you pointed out earlier on, you know, when technology became so critical to the business as a, as an asset. 
and it was recognised that they moved to the they moved to the board. And I think you're seeing something very, very similar with with the InfoSec people, because we used to be basically lumped in, as you said, with um, IT, which you know it didn't really work because IT's role was there to keep the lights on, to keep the services running, and to keep things easily working so people could access them. When it came to security, yeah, they were used to it, like firewalling and some of the simple stuff. But when it came to the more complicated stuff and things like defense and depth, they used to blanch quite a bit. And of course, very few back in the day, I'm not saying that's the same case now, just in case I upset some people, the InfoSec person would be trying to communicate a risk to the powers that be saying, look, no, this is a serious risk to your environment. But the CIO would be too scared to give that info and make, make themselves look weak on the board. So I'm seeing a big shift. I get involved now quite often as an advisor to a lot of C-suites, whereas before we'd be kind of, as consultants, we'd be talking to the CIO, maybe the compliance directors, that kind of stuff. We are now being brought on board and told, can you just have a chat with the C-suite about this? Because the goal of any security professional is to basically secure the organization. We're not there to make money. We're not there to lose. We're there to prevent the money from being lost and from the assets to go the way of the dodo or for us to fail in compliance. And we're seeing a lot more allies nowadays in the compliance departments and the financial departments because they understand regulation and how important it is to maintain it, especially if you've got a legal department as well. And I think that that shift and change in the way that CISOs are viewed within an organization is, is about time in all honesty. I mean, you can't have everybody on the board. I get that. But if you're a, you know, a decent sized organization, have your CISO at least advise you. You don't have to have them on there. They don't have to be a decision maker. Just let them advise you as to what's going on. And I think that's really good, not only for the industry, but it's also quite enriching in pushing security and building better defense in depth, both in the supply chain and outside of it. Yeah, and it, re- it reflects internal trust within organisations as well. That uh, you're the that you you ultimately you employ a professional, you know, in order to you know, own and, and manage that risk. And uh, you're know, the, the the role of the CISO, you know, which you just carry that responsibility on their shoulders. And it's absolutely right that you know the expert briefs at least directly the board. There, you're there. It isn't necessarily going to be the right place for them to sit. You know, is you know, sit with the executive. You know, they might even if they're it's, but um, but you know, they are um, you know, reporting lines are just down to corporate organisation. But but who actually presents that brief? Who owns the risks? And you know, who who is responsible? It's, it's uh, you know, it's very you know, key that if it's going to be articulated, it's done by somebody who really does appreciate it and and isn't uh, in any way diluting it. Uh, that's uh, that's really critical. One of the things I wanted to, to get from yourself, what are you seeing at the moment? What are we going to be looking at in the next three to five years? You know, we're going through all this change. We've got hardly any InfoSec people trained up to do the job at the moment. We've you know got a million, million tools coming out of pretty much everywhere. <laughs> and they're all being bought out and they're all being amalgamated into sort of big clients, a bit like cloud. Do you remember that when... Everybody who had IT skills created a cloud company and there was like 400 of them in one area and all of a sudden they'd all get eaten up. Where do you see kind of where things are going in the next three to five years? What are your predictions, both you and your organization? Because, you know, I'm sure you've got a few, few views on that. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, the sort of the shifting threat position 
whilst you know, we always like to think about the capability of the actors and, and the motivation, one of the things we, you know, we, we are to track is, is that capability side. We want to know what, you know, who are the groups that are actively doing things within infrastructure and what are they looking at developing with the discovery of the, the pipe dreams um, suite of malware. We've seen a real shift in the, the level of development and the capability of, uh, of adversaries in this space, you know, utilizing the core technologies below, you know, the thing, the boxes that people buy. So no longer just targeting a particular brand. You know, there are some specific devices that were targeted in there, but actually the capabilities are entirely adaptable. And that's a real shift from the, uh, the crash override malware that we saw in uh, sort of late 2016. And many bits of that just didn't work. You know, there was a lot of, there was some good stuff in there. There was some really bad stuff. And you've seen some basic reuse of that uh, your know, last year in Ukraine, but these new frameworks, a real shift in capability, you know, and obviously a really great new story that it was found before it was even compiled and, and you know, prevented the use of it. But the fact that somebody is invest, you know, likely a state investing in the capability to develop tools like that means that there's an appetite to use them. And, uh, and so the sophistication of attacks, I think, is going to, is going to massively increase over the next, the next five years, you know, just because those general capabilities are increasing all the time. And you make a really good point there. I mean, when you think about it, these groups have been really well funded in the last two years with some of the, some of the, the monetary values they've had. And yeah, of course, why wouldn't they utilize some of that? Like any organization, I mean, the Conti tape leaks were really, interesting for me mm. watching them operate as an organization and i i mean i knew that they did as a general rule i didn't realize they were quite as well organized as they feasibly were yeah i would say that the the capabilities within within those spaces have been focused on what generates the revenues immediately a number of them have added some very basic um you know, OT specific things, you know, targeting specific file extensions, that sort of thing that they've discovered are, are relevant in those environments and might cause some disruption. And then you've got the two sort of state actors who are thinking about disruptive or destructive events. But there's a blurred line. You know, it's really clean. You know, we, we don't do attribution within Dragos. We, you know, we track and name activity groups based on their tactics, techniques, and procedures. You know, but many of them are aligned to the activities of a number of states. Uh, you know, some of it's pretty, is pretty obvious, but the criminal gangs are not necessarily aligned with states. In some cases, they have allied themselves or, and, and, you know, and due to the, the nationalities of those people, it's clear to see that their motives and motivations change. The fact that you've got this ever-growing criminal skill set, you know, that's going to generate money for them, and you've got these uh, plus governments funding the development of capabilities and the overlap there. We've seen that, you know, with some of the, um, the technologies deployed in, in Ukraine, the disruptive techniques can be very similar to, you know, to those used by, yeah, by criminal groups. And, and you see all of that overlap occurring. And I think as, as the criminal groups start to look to be more and more sophisticated, in particular, as the IT environments get more and more defended, then, you know, they, they will pivot to something else. And, and, you know, and, and there's a huge risk there. So I think this is an important thing, you know, to, con, con, to consider is how you, how are the actors evolving and, and looking specifically at that in, in terms of broader sort of commercial sense, you know, where are the companies going? It's really quite difficult to, um, you know, to predict what's the next new exciting technology going to be. So it's a quick, people are quick to do out there and, and develop it. Actually, 
by instead you know focusing on our on our on what are the actual risks what are the, you know, what's actually manifesting and what is going to be a capability that everybody needs rather than one particular customer is asking for is one of the the key ways of of ensuring that you're developing a a capability that's going to actually manage the risk rather than what is the the newest or sexiest thing to be doing so it's a you know, that's one thing we we were always looking at is what what is what is it that everybody needs rather than you know what is the the new exciting thing. Is it fair to say then you think that maybe this is a, a the lull before a bit of a storm? I think um, it's it's always hard to predict a storm. I think we all mm. you know in the in the infosec community predicted a storm around Ukraine. Well, the, I mean, the WF have put it in their top eight items on their their top concerns of a of a you know a massive rise or a massive cyber attack and we've all been kind of aware that that could happen for a while but it's sobering what you're saying it is a significant risk and the capabilities are there um but as, as defenders you know we've always managed to keep one you know one step ahead but it's it's just a challenge that we must never you know lose sight of you know I, I'd hate to sort of introduce you know, too much fear in this space and you know, you know give too much too much kudos to the to the attackers because you know whilst they're getting better you know, as as do we as defenders and we you know, it's a it's a great industry to be in for that you know, because you know we you know, we we're motivated to do what is right and I think that's you know, we're, you know, we're lucky to work in an industry where actually you know, for the all we do all day long you know is is stop people from doing you know doing bad stuff you know it's, uh, it's not boring it's, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's never it's never boring and you know uh, there's a huge amount of opportunity you know despite everything that might be happening in terms of the wider you know geopolitical sense you know and the and what's happening with the economy you know industry still needs organizations to to look after it and and defend it and and you know that's uh, you know it's, it means it's a it's a great place to be right now because you know we are ahead of the attackers. You know, we proved that with, you know, with things like Pipe Dream. We got in there before they ever managed to use it and, and help organizations to mitigate the threats that it might have faced rather than responding, which is the typical thing we have to do. So you see something new, somebody's hit by it, and then you got to go and respond. We're ahead of the game and we can stay ahead of the game, but we've got to keep developing the skills. You know, there's a whole raft of things that need to be done in that space and a whole other conversation. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I I have to agree with you on that one, and I think you know, uh, one of the things I do in the masterclasses that I do, I, I I really push, you know, you can prep, you can prep, you can prep, but make absolutely certain you've got really good instant response because you are going to have something, you know, you can prep and you can, you know, preempt as much as possible, but you've got to be prepared to to have an event, and when you do, you just get it done you know war game yourself it is our number one you know, number one critical control you know is is you know is it be be prepared you know as you, you know, and, and understand what you're going to do you know happy that is, as a community we can kind of, even our, in our resources that we put out through our OT cert program which are you know are free for you know critical infrastructure organizations of any size even the, you know the smaller ones that you might struggle to finance these things Putting you know, some of those sort of basic exercising techniques and, and capabilities are there and, and free because it is one of the number one things you can do to prepare is you know um, is understand your, how you might behave in a particular exercise. Absolutely, Phil. It has been absolutely fantastic having you on. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, you've provided some great insight, and it's it's always. 
it's always good to hear some, you know, some new voices. You've been fantastic. And I'll probably reach out and see if I can grab you for a couple of in the future <laughs> but um, thank you ever so much and, and good luck to you and Dracos you know, Dragos as well and all of you out there you'll be seeing probably a lot of them in the future I think they're an important aspect of what we need to do for our funny enough our critical infrastructure so cheers Phil thanks a lot thank you thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast If you like the podcast, if you love the podcast, please feel free to subscribe. And if you have any questions, please get in touch. Thank you very much and have a great day.